welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from the C major prelude of The Well-Tempered Clavier, book one. Okay, so something pretty famous today. A lot of listeners have probably heard this before. Some people who play piano have perhaps played this. It's actually decently playable for intermediate keyboardists. We know that it would not have been played on a piano. When Bach was born, the piano hadn't been invented yet, and it was invented during his lifetime. He didn't use it that much, although he definitely knew about it. Plus, it would have been a very early version of the instrument. Not exactly how a piano looks and sounds today. But first we gotta unpack what this even is before we get to why it has some really, really great musical moments in it, especially at the end. And this is actually a monumental keyboard collection. If you've heard the term before, well-tempered clavier, that's what this is. It's two giant books, and we're talking about the first one which he composed earlier in his life. And the BWV number 846 here refers to just the C major prelude and fugue from book one. It's called 24 Preludes and Fugues, the collection. And why 24? If you know a little about music theory, you might think, well, there's 12 different possible notes, 12 different pitches that there are, C, C sharp, D, and so on. And there's 12 of those. And if you write music in a key, there's 12 of those and a major key is 12, and then a minor key is another 12, so that's 24. But that's pretty remarkable for this time period because keyboard instruments were not tuned this way at this period of history. They were tuned roughly to play in whatever key you were going to play them in. That's not how it is today at all. Everybody knows what a piano looks like today. There's white keys and black keys. And the two keys that are as close together as can be are the same distance from each other pitch-wise. They're the same musical distance, the musical interval, as any other. That's called equal temperament. But that's not how it used to be. And in fact, you might tune your harpsichord or keyboard instrument, whatever it may be, organ, according to what the music called for. Plus, there's a whole bunch of different tuning systems. It gets very complicated. If you're playing in C major, you might tune the notes of your harpsichord in accordance with that. You'd tune C exactly right, and then you'd tune G according to C. You'd tune E according to C. Notes that you were going to use a lot like that, you'd tune in a certain way. And that's the way that people actually used to manage their musical instruments. We just don't do it that way anymore, so it's a little harder for us to imagine. But to write a huge collection of music, which would be possible only in a more well-tempered system, was the thing that was the experiment by Bach. Nobody had quite done this yet, to all the 24 different keys. And the Voltemperierte Klavier, the German name for well-tempered clavier, means roughly that you can tune the instrument so you can play in all of these different keys. The next thing to think about is, 
What are these? What kind of music is this? It's usually played nowadays on the harpsichord, or you could definitely play this on a piano. Works great. But it would have been played on a keyboard instrument of its time, like a harpsichord. And each key in the book, each piece, is a prelude, which is fanciful and decorative, usually, followed by a fugue, which is complex and contrapuntal, has a bunch of different voices playing against each other. We spoke very briefly about fugues in the first episode. The Dona Nobis Pachim in our first episode is certainly a fugue, and Bach is very famous for fugues. The Pasakalia and fugue in C minor for organ, for example, as well, in our last episode. So this book is full of preludes and fugues in every key. Some of them are very difficult. So it's interesting that this first prelude is so simplistic. The whole thing is basically just chords broken up into arpeggios. Arpeggios is just the Italian term we use to mean broken up chords. So if you block up the chords together and play them all vertically, you can hear what all the notes sound like together if you were to play them all at the same time instead of broken apart, which is an interesting experiment. Because then it raises the question, is there a melody in this piece? There's no melody. Could you sing a melody along with this? There's just chords, the way Bach wrote it. And how many different parts are there? How many parts of the chord are there? You could say five. There's five notes spread out. They do change in accordance with the rules of harmony of his day. But it just sounds like chords. That's it. It's almost like a keyboard exercise. And in fact, we think that it was. Bach wrote the earlier version of this probably for his son, his oldest son, Wilhelm Friedman Bach, who was just a kid at the time. In the notes, Bach actually wrote them all out in block chords, so he didn't have to write out the whole pattern over and over again. And the fact that there's no melody in this very beautiful and moving piece of keyboard music has led people over the years to try to put melodies to it. So the French composer Charles Gounod wrote an Ave Maria that you can sing to this as it's, as accompaniment, and it works really well. It fits right in. To put a melody on top of this works well, which is interesting, because it also lives perfectly without having a melody on it at all. The fact that it can work with or without a melody is an interesting aspect of musical texture about this piece. Because a lot of music, if you took the melody out, it would sound empty and devoid of anything. But some music, like this, can work without truly having a melody, because there's still some sort of through line to the whole composition. And some peculiar things that people like to focus on about this piece, one of them is, as written, is one chord followed by another chord that sounds a little jarring and it doesn't sound like the second one is allowed to be coming after the first one. It's almost like there's a measure missing, and if you put one in, the harmonic motion of the music would flow more naturally. 
You could even argue that that measure has to be in there because of the rules of harmony of this time. And the Gounod Ave Maria does use the extra measure, but not in the original. So authentic performances of the original, like the one we have here by the harpsichordist Siba Henstra from the Netherlands Bach Society performance that we're linking to, that measure in the original is not there. That extra measure is not. So you get these interesting chords that are kind of gnarly up against each other. But we think that's probably what Bach intended. He was adventurous with his harmony, so we're not worried about that. We're not worried about censoring him. But all this to get narrowed down to my actual moment, which is the end. The end, I think, is so strange. The way it relates to the beginning. Very thought-provoking. This whole time, throughout the piece, you're starting high up. And by the time you get to the end, you've gone lower in the harpsichord. And if you didn't notice that happening, it's because it's very subtle and happens gradually. It's sort of a neat progression from high to medium down to low. If you actually just play only the bass notes really fast, you can see a really interesting progression of how that happens, plus other aspects of internal structure. including one thing that sounds like it repeats itself at a different lower level. The reason why I think the most interesting thing about this is the ending is that the third to the last measure is down here. Then what happens next is the right hand jumps up here. And then you have your last chord. But why does the right hand jump up higher there? Why not just stay where it is and finish the piece down here? Maybe it was just for some variety or to use a brighter part of the instrument, but maybe something else. You could conceptually connect the end of this to the beginning of it. And it was almost like Bach secretly intended you to be able to repeat back to the beginning again because it goes so low but jumps back up at the end almost like it's getting ready for you to go back to the beginning there's an unresolved type of note that happens in the second to last measure in the right hand the very top thing you hear that note it wants to go down to this note but it doesn't get resolved that way during the last chord. However, if you make a bit of a stretch here and you just repeated the piece at the beginning instead of playing the last note, then it's continuous and that note gets resolved.
which I learned about one time, which I absolutely love because it challenges us to think of a piece differently. We always think of pieces having a beginning, middle, and end, and some pieces can repeat, but this one can be thought of almost circular. So that's pretty neat, different way to think about it. So Christian, why do you think this particular prelude has stood the test of time to be such a popular piece out of all of Bach's other work? It's a really good question. Tough to answer, but I think it's just so perfectly simple. It has such an open musical texture. It's almost too simple. It has no melody, like we said. It almost forces you to just meditate upon this beautiful, simple, changing chord progression. And yet even so, the harmonies do get really intense and crunchy in the middle there. It is a lot simpler and less showy, less fanfare-like than the other preludes. So there's almost something poetic about how it's this first thing in this giant collection, but it starts out so simple, almost deceivingly simple. And then it's followed by the C major fugue, which is also deceptively simple at the beginning. but winds up being a huge, complex, masterful work of fugue. So it's the fact that it just sort of almost leads itself, this prelude. It's not like going on a road, but more like a dirt path where you can push left and right. You don't really know which way to go. The music doesn't have a melody to let us focus on words or anything. Of course, unless you're using the Ave Maria version. It just sort of pulls you along in a weird, natural way, in a, like a loop. It's not a scary journey. It's it's just like a couple hundred feet away from the back door. You're going to loop around and go right right back home. But it's this beautiful little weird adventure out in the meadow. Not a true scary adventure or a big quest, but just a little a little jaunt around the garden. Yeah, I really like that. The simplicity of it and the idea that even without a true melody, it's really just stripped down. And that's the genius of Bach is that it's still perfectly complete without it. And in some ways, this is kind of the polar opposite to last week's episode pick, the Passacaglia in C minor for organ, because that had like this repeating melody that was just like leading inexorably toward some doom or something. You know, it's very it's very uh, haunting and uh, scary sounding, and it's complicated over this melody that repeats. And here we have no melody. We have a floating serene piece of music arpeggiated. It's like basically the exact opposite of them of what we did last week. Yeah. And they're both iconic keyboard works, but the Pasacalia is basically this tower of architecture imposing even. And then you've got this prelude, which is just basic nature. Gentle, a little bit unpredictable, a little pure little slice of the outdoors. Right. And I think the relative simplicity of this, it lets you imprint on it whatever you want it to be. That's probably why certain pieces of music, but also works of art or or anything, even if they have complexity, the apparent simplicity of something can be really attractive. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing if it's simple. It means anybody can relate. And I think that's part of this. Right. Including young keyboardists who could learn this when they're kids. Also including the first person who had to learn this when they were a kid, which was Bach's son. And now, here is the C major prelude from The Well-Tempered Clavier, book one.
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the fugue that follows this prelude, or other keyboard works by J.S. Bach, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of this by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Go to your podcast app and hit subscribe. Okay, Alex, what are we looking at next week? Next week, we're looking at a choral work, Jesu Meine Freude, BWV 227. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Thank you.